0: It's Tuesday, August third, from the Recount and iHeart Radio. This is the News Items podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. On Monday and Wednesdays, my co-host Rebecca Darst and I talk about the news. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we bring you interviews with smart people who are knowledgeable in their fields. My guest today is Jean Soroka, the Executive Director of the Port of Los Angeles which is by some measures the busiest container port in North America. Before that, he worked all over the world, from Shanghai to Dubai to Jakarta. He was actually in Shanghai during the SARS outbreak, which was first identified in China in 2002. That experience has helped him keep the port of L.A. open and functioning during the pandemic. Gene and I talk about how these two public health challenges compare the ongoing supply chain disruptions weighing down economies around the world, and the often misunderstood role of ports in the American economy. Here we go. Gene, thanks very much for doing the podcast today. We really appreciate your taking the time.
2: Thanks, John. Good to be with you.
0: So the first question I always ask in these podcasts is the here to there question, which is you graduated from Crowder College in 1984. You're now the executive director of the Port of Los Angeles. How did you get from there to here, I guess, is the, <laughs> the other way to put it.
2: After Crowder, I attended the University of New Orleans, received an undergraduate degree in marketing, continued on to uh, earn my MBA from the same school. At that time, it was the height of the oil glut with a price per barrel of below $10 wow. and found it very difficult to find a job in and around the Crescent City. That city's economy was basically around energy, tourism, and uh, retail dining, entertainment, and it was tough. I found a really good headhunter who was on the, uh, the fringe of the CBD. They had worked with American President Lines before, and I was lucky enough to get a couple of interviews with them, But the only reason I got the interviews was that my dad worked for American Airlines and I could fly to Cincinnati and Chicago free of charge. <laughs> That's great. So it was, uh, it was a tough go. And before the internet, we used to send out letters to companies asking for interviews along with our resumes. I think I saved somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 rejection letters. Really? Kind of a challenge, but nonetheless, getting into this industry has been, I think, really the California dream for me. And being able to travel and live all over the world and now be at the nation's greatest and largest port is just a dream.
0: So I wanted to ask you, you were in China during the SARS outbreak. Tell us about that and what you learned from that experience.
2: Yeah, I was overseas for about 11 years. Uh, I started off in Shanghai, worked there for about four years. I was the director of sales. For American president lines and pretty scary information was uh, coming out in dribs and drabs, and we were trying to figure out what best we could do for our employees and our colleagues to keep everybody safe and healthy. Uh, airborne disease, lung based, you found out pretty quickly that there could be tactile transmission. So, we tried to uh, learn as much as we could on, on how we could protect ourselves, and if anything, it became economically daunting for most people, because with a lot of trade tied to China, folks really didn't know how to react. I can remember at a time if I traveled to uh, the United States, there was a 30-day quarantine period with some nascent testing in place to see whether or not you had contracted the virus. Uh, We stayed on the ground, no domestic or international travel for the better part of eight to 10 months, as I recall, in the early 2000s. But what that did for me was allow me to have a perspective on what could be a certain outlook if we were ever faced with an airborne epidemic again. And we were with COVID-19. So early on, we took a, a very cautionary route in shutting down all international travel in December of 2019. Save one bereavement trip, we canceled all domestic travel by the end of February in 2020. And we've assembled a leadership team here at the Port of Los Angeles that comes into the building every day to manage our business. But the great majority of our folks uh, telecommute and work from home. So we had a little bit of the ability to see around corners and into the future that gave us maybe an advantage on how to get the business running, but more importantly, how to give a level of confidence to our staff and colleagues on how to protect and prevent any dire health crisis.
0: You said that you sort of began the pivot, if you will, in reaction to COVID uh, outbreak in December of 2019. That's well ahead of most people's timetables, for yep, sure. We
2: stopped uh, we stopped all international travel, knowing that the virus had started to really penetrate certain areas of China, Getting on long airplane rides didn't seem like a good thing either, so we decided to hunker down right here in Los Angeles.
0: There's a book out called Premonition by Michael Lewis. There are people in the book who see it coming. They see the virus as a sort of an existential threat long before others do. If you were reacting to what you knew about what was going on in China in December, did you communicate that to people throughout California and the U.S. government? Were people asking you, like, why are you doing this?
2: Yeah, there were conversations among uh, leadership in the city and, and with some others to take these precautions. But broad conversations, no, I don't think a lot of folks had the wherewithal to really understand what this meant. Again, I leaned back on my days living in China during SARS to say we were going to take a pretty cautious route. If things didn't get as bad as some predicted, or if there was a quicker stop to the spread of the virus, we'd have been on the, early, uh, on the early part of the curve. It didn't happen that way, and I'm very glad we took the cautious tactics that we did.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break,
1: and we'll be right back. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
0: Welcome back to the podcast. So the Port of L.A. is the busiest port in America. Prior to COVID, how much traffic and cargo did you manage and what happened during COVID?
2: To take a step back, John, we, by definition of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and by legislation in the state of California, are a landlord port. We lease out our 7,500 acres of land and 43 miles of waterway to private sector companies that are in charge of moving all of this cargo. So we've got 27 terminals, 270 berths. Seven of those terminals are on the container side of our business, which is the bulk of the cargo that's moved here. So we rely heavily on those experts to be able to go out and earn business, bring capital, Invest in equipment, technology, and human capital to be able to move all this cargo. And we've been uh, categorized as the largest port in the United States for the better part of 21 consecutive years. Uh, Since 2014, we started to see a pretty steady ascent in earning more cargo volume, although we've struggled, uh, losing about 20% of our market share up to that point to ports on the East and Gulf Coast as many importers and exporters have tried to diversify their usage of ports and go to a more what we call a four corners strategy across the united states to de-risk any bottlenecks that may occur in the supply chain but when Mm -hmm. i came on in 14 we had a single-minded approach to try to grow the business which in turn means a growth and creation of jobs so that seemed to align with a lot of people that have business in and around the port complex As we headed into COVID-19, it was a real choppy year. What I remember from that time is that in the spring of 2018, the past administration of Washington began to levy tariffs on imports coming from China, started squeezing other Asia countries that they felt were currency manipulators. And in turn, our export community had retaliatory tariffs put down against them. So we saw a big rush of imports before any tariff milestone dates. And uh, we also saw that our agriculture manufacturing to an extent, our automotive sector were impacted by uh, retaliatory tariffs. So volume would go up ahead of a tariff implementation date and it would drop precipitously after those taxes went into place. So much so, John, that in the fourth quarter of 2019, our business went off a cliff. We dropped 16% because importers had rushed in their cargo ahead of year-end tariff uh, implementation Mm -hmm. dates, and we were really scratching our heads as to what 2020 would bring. In fact, most people who observe our industry said it would be a fairly mundane year, flat to declining cargo volume, and we'll just have to gut it out given what we see could be uh, the election results of that presidential election. And then uh, when uh, we started to see the safer at home orders come out here nationally, the shuttering of the China manufacturing segment, especially in central China, we saw our cargo volume plummet 19% in the first five months of 2020. We weren't going to work. We weren't going out and spend a lot of money. We weren't spending it in the service sector. And so that cargo need really dried up. But then something strange happened the American consumer figured that they still needed to buy goods, maybe at higher levels. They also noticed that the big box retailers, home improvement stores, even our neighborhood hardware store remained open during the pandemic as essential to the American consumer. And we started buying like never before. And that pandemic-induced buying surge continues today, We have had record growth since June of 2020 until now. We've set monthly records, quarterly, and an annual record for any port in the Western Hemisphere. So it's really been three years of ups and downs, twists and turns, but we've done a pretty good job, even though there are still areas like exports that need a tremendous amount of help.
0: We've been reading a lot about supply chain interruption and disruption and so on and so forth. Do you see that on your end of the business?
2: It's a problem in just about every east-west trade lane that we have in the world today. John, I've been in this business over 30 years and gone through seven different economic crises, including what we saw during this pandemic thus far. And what I can tell you is it's tough on everybody. And for the importer, the exporter, we absolutely feel their pain in not being able to predict how cargo can move when it will get to its destination and how swiftly we can recover. What we've seen is that because of this American consumer buying surge that we're a part of, the factories in China can't keep up with all the orders. Right. That sets them back a little bit. Then when they're able to produce, they're pushing out more cargo than we've ever seen. And I think it was one of our esteemed colleagues in the industry, Federal Maritime Commission Chair Dan Maffey, who said it's not like things are bad, but you're trying to squeeze 10 lanes of traffic into five. All these records we've set also start right here at the port where we are welcoming 50 percent more vessel into our port every day than we did in more normal times before COVID-19. So our dock workers, our longshore workforce, truckers, warehouse folks, they've been able to increase their productivity by 50% during the pandemic. And that just, I think that really sets the standard. But you've got so much cargo coming in that each node of the supply chain is really, really full to the rafters, whether it be warehouses our railroads, the trucking firms, to the marine terminals, the shipping lines, et cetera. You just got more cargo than we've ever had before. Yet the productivity looks good. We've got to continue to find ways to increase efficiencies, and we will do that. We've also got to have a better balance of trade. So part of this answer will be policy as well in how we get our American exporter back in the game. So there are answers here to try to figure out what we need to do to improve, even at these heightened levels. But these are unprecedented times.
0: When you say, export policy, what would you recommend that the Biden administration do?
2: Well, first, huge compliments to the president and his key staff for issuing the executive order recently on supply chain, looking at everything from microchips to agriculture and how we source products, et cetera. But from an export perspective, I think we need policy that encourages exporters, not regulation and not legislation. But possibly there are ways to incent this. And whether it's trying to find a better opportunity for what we call round trip economics, most of our imports go to metropolitan areas where many of us live and consume the products. Most of America's exports originate from rural America. So getting a truck or a train, a container from Chicago, as an example, up to the Red River Valley in in North Dakota and Minnesota is a long haul with nothing inside that box. So there's no revenue. How do we entice those service providers to really square that circle and get those assets from the metro areas to the rural farming community or manufacturing sector and be able to spin them back out to Asia? Part of that is digital technology, something we developed here in Los Angeles that I'd like to see run nationwide. We call it a port community system and it could be a heat map of sorts, showing the importers and exporters where bottlenecks may exist, flip the chart. The other side could be an opportunity map where it shows where these containers are, where the services lie, so we could match up better our import to export turns.
0: There's a great essay in the London Review of Books of All Places, which was a book review of two books about uh, your business, about container ships. And John Lanchester, who wrote the review, said that the thing about the container business is that it's sort of the Internet of actual physical commerce. And what it enables is the making of a shirt in, say, Taiwan being delivered to the port of Los Angeles and adding two cents to the overall cost of the product thus essentially enabling globalization. Is the price of moving that shirt to the port of Los Angeles, is it, do you see that increasing substantially, or do you think it's going to stay pretty much at whatever it is, one or two or four cents?
2: It's all based on supply and demand. Right now, with the strength of this import market, prices have been going up. But please remember, about 95% of all importers here in the U.S., contract annually with their service providers. So they have fairly stable rates, even though they might increase from contract to contract. The export numbers have looked pretty weak, as I've mentioned. So those prices, by comparison, are a lot lower, but they've also increased, again, based on the supply demand of the service provider's offerings. Still, for pennies on the dollar, you can ship a pair of really high quality basketball or track shoes, apparel into the United States for us to buy. So even with these price fluctuations, the American consumer should not see a tremendous uptick in prices, even though we're watching every day what inflation looks like to us across a wide basket of goods that we purchase every day.
0: All right, we're going to take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the podcast. One of the concerns after 9-11 was weapons being brought in to ports, drugs being brought into ports, terrorist activities of various kinds entering the country through ports. How has the Port of Los Angeles addressed the possibility of if not terrorist attack, terrorist weaponry, or terrorist drug infiltration. I guess I'm not quite sure what the right word is, but what does your counterterrorism operation look like?
2: So I'll start with cyber. In September of 2014, with great partnership from the Department of Homeland Services, we put into place the nation's first cybersecurity operations center at a port right here in LA. And today, that CSOC, as we call it, is thwarting or stopping more than 40 million cyber intrusion attempts per month, double what it was before the pandemic began. With the success of that and the need to really spur even further dialogue with our private sector partners, we developed in the fourth quarter of 2020 the first ever cyber resilience center, and it comes under the FBI's description of a neighborhood cyberhood watch program, which brings the public sector, like the Port of Los Angeles, together with its private sector partners to share information of what cyber threats may look like. If someone unfortunately has been impacted by a cyber intrusion attempt, that information can be shared across the port landscape so others can protect themselves from that particular type of definitioning, All done under anonymous privilege to make sure that no one is taken advantage of. This information sharing seems to be the next level of protection on the cyber side. On the physical side, I was with uh, APL when we started in conjunction with uh, United States Customs and Border Protection. CTPAT, which is the Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism. It was one of many responses to the tragic events of 9-11. And as a founding company member, we set out protocol to investigate and certify all members within the supply chain. That work continues to this day, and starting with the Los Angeles Port Police Division and our allied agencies working across state, local, and national authorities, our allied agencies, as well as those on the international landscape, we continue to work strategies and tactics that will prevent any notion of folks trying to intrude here on the port shores. That is a continuous and ongoing plan that we have across those agencies, including radiation testing on cargo that comes in, the work that's done by U.S. Customs, and the information flow across those allied agencies to make sure we're on the lookout for the bad guys every single day.
0: You said 40 million attempted intrusions in one month?
2: Yeah, that's been the average since COVID-19, call it, since last uh, March of 2020. And it's double what the trend was before COVID-19, and we're stopping every one of them. But that is looked at as the port's digital infrastructure itself. Now taking it to the next level with the Cyber Resilience Center will bring our private sector in place because we have had problems there. There have been companies within our supply chain that have been attacked and shut down. The NotPetya attack of Eastern Europe impacted us right here in Los Angeles and slowed business at one of our terminals down to 10% of normal. And that also extends beyond the cargo business, but to our cruise business. In making sure that as we kick off with our next scheduled sailing on September 25th, we have all the rights and privileges shared with our private sector partners, but to make sure that we are in the safest environment possible, both with respect to passengers and crews, as well as our cyber activity and protection mechanisms.
0: And are you linked into all the other ports in the United States and indeed around the world for cyber intrusions and sort of alerts that this or that ship might have some bad cargo?
2: While we uh, try to stay close to other ports and supply chain partners, this is part of my call for a nationwide digital platform. And no, we don't have digital threads running to every port around the country today. What we do is take our CSOC information, and provide it to the ISOC, the Information Sharing Operations Center in Los Angeles as part of the city of Los Angeles' digital infrastructure. That then is shared with the NKIC in Washington at the national level. But having our tentacles go out even further so we could see around corners and downstream more is a necessary next step.
0: It's an amazing and just incredibly complicated defensive effort, right? It's astonishing. What is it about the port industry that you would
2: want our listeners to understand or know? That's a great question. And I'll start off with how important this port is to our national economy. Uh, The cargo and passengers that traverse through the Port of Los Angeles reach each and every one of our nation's 435 congressional districts. It truly is a conversation of national significance. Secondly, It's the jobs that we create, produce, and sustain. One in nine jobs in the five counties, Southern California region emanate from this port. More than a million paychecks every week go to people who do business with us, whether that be the manufacturing community, truck drivers, longshore members, warehouse folks, import-export companies, logisticians, and others. And I think thirdly, it's the fact that we are a jobs multiplier. So it's about really self-help of us investing in our own communities to how many jobs we create along this path of building development and ongoing commerce for the United States.
0: All right, Gene. Well, thank you very, very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's fascinating, the work that you do. How much longer do you think you're going to be doing it?
2: I'll stay here as long as they'll have me. I really enjoy this job. There you go. It's been a (laughs) tremendous opportunity to work side-by-side with colleagues and industry stakeholders alike. I run to the office every day. All
0: right. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre bien Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer is the great Simran Singh. I'll be back tomorrow with my co-host Rebecca Darce for a round of news items and analysis. We'll see you then.